I think I would want to prioritize conservation. You know, it's still a sad fact that there's two pounds of soil going down the Mississippi River for every pound of corn that's being grown in the Corn Belt. Uh, why are we subsidizing systems that are essentially destroying soil at twice the rate that they're producing food? You know, and that, uh, there shouldn't be any subsidies going on to farms that are destroying their land base. That is the voice of farmer Klaus Martens of Penyan, New York, in New York's Finger Lakes region, where he has been a visionary thinker on systemic change when it comes to regenerative agriculture and food production, how we improve the quality of the land, the water, overall public health, and how we can help farmers earn a living in the face of natural disasters that are getting more severe and more frequent. I'm Roger Sorkin, the director of the American Resilience Project, where we shape narratives designed to influence public policy, inspire cultural change, and strengthen civilizational security. American Resilience Project recently filmed in Pena, New York, with Klaus Martens and a number of other farmers in his community who've transitioned to organic farming recently, where they increase their biodiversity, and as a result, they need to help each other with specialized equipment that they share that increases their yields, it increases their social connections, uh, gives them more time for family, helps them save money on equipment. And Klaus is really fascinating because he's able to connect so many different systems that we have in our society to agriculture and how by changing the way we farm, we can influence those other systems like our healthcare, our water quality in cities, and a lot more. So I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Klaus Martens. So our farm uh, started out as my parents and my two brothers and I uh, each farmed together for a while and then we uh, split on our own. And now I farm with our son and we're also working together with these other young farmers who are part of the group. And we farmed just roughly 2,000 acres of land, much of it double crop in the Finger Lakes of New York. We're growing over 20 different crops and we're uh, marketing them uh, for a lot of different purposes, including artisan uh, wheat for artisan uh, bread. Uh, we're producing ancient grains like spelt, einkorn, emmer. Uh, we're producing triticale, uh, lentils, peas, kidney beans, pinto beans, black turtle soup beans, um, soybeans. We produce a lot of edamame soybeans. We produce seed crops. Uh, oats, rye, barley, a huge amount of malting barley. So uh, there are tens of thousands of gallons of organic beer being made out of our organic malting barley. The, the more diversity we have on the farm in the system, the more resilient the system becomes. And the other thing climate change has brought us is extreme increase in uh, severity and length of droughts and it's also a severe increase in the intensity of rainfall when we do get rain. And all of these conditions put a lot of stress on some crops and having the diversity on the farm makes sure that nobody, no single event is going to wipe out every crop that we have. It's unfortunate that our crop insurance system actually rewards farmers for taking bigger risks and then just indemnifies them when everything goes to pieces as opposed to rewarding farmers for minimizing their risk and running lower losses intentionally by the organization of their farming system. So talk to me a little bit about the crop insurance program. How did we get here and how do we fix what's wrong with it? Uh, to, to be blunt, 
we were under severe pressure through the 80s and 90s and uh, beginning of this century from the EU to get rid of our subsidies because the subsidies were uh, a trade distortion. And what we did was cleverly hid the subsidies in our crop insurance subsidies. So that uh, we're still subsidizing monoculture corn and soybeans and we're still uh, make, still putting the money into this uh, unsustainable amount of production in an unsustainable non-diverse type of cropping system but we're doing it to guarantee that when a farmer gets caught for having this uh, for having taken these risks that they'll just be made whole with taxpayer money. And so one of the reasons why we're covering these stories right now is because the farm bill is coming up. What can the farm bill do to help us adjust this broken system of crop insurance? Well I think the the low-hanging fruit is to stop subsidizing things that are harmful. And we need to identify what are the perverse incentives that are in our system and target them. And some of those perverse incentives are rewarding this large-scale monoculture that exposes vast areas of the country to huge losses that then have to be covered by insurance. And if I'd rather, not just, I'd rather not just be negative and say, let's take that away, but what we really should be doing is rewarding farmers for having creative approaches to forming more diverse and more resilient systems. Uh, one idea that I floated several years ago that never really took off was that maybe we should have a, a crop insurance savings account like you have a health savings account, and that a farmer can take the subsidy that would be going into their crop insurance premium and put it into an account where it accrues money and then draw on that account when they have losses. And that way if the farmer minimizes the size of the losses, the money that's in that account would, would continue to build. I think it would also save the taxpayers money because once that account had sufficient money in it, it wouldn't need to have the annual infusion of taxpayer money to build it up. And I think the model of the health savings account would be a good one to build a crop insurance system on. As long as the, the devil's always in the detail, as long as this was built with the intention of fostering more diversity. I think the crop insurance program originally was, was actually proactive thinking. I mean, there were, there were some severe events, always have been, like hailstorms that would wipe out entire crops. And farmers, especially beginning farmers, would be wiped out with that kind of a loss if it came too early in their career before they had built any equity. But what I'm seeing now is that it's been shifted from just taking care of these catastrophic events to uh, guaranteeing the farmer an income from doing things that are, to be blunt, really risky. Um, one example, I'm, I can't cite the data right now, but I remember recently reading that uh, cotton farmers in Texas got somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion worth of premium subsidies for growing cotton in an area where the climate has changed to the point now where cotton doesn't want to grow. So the farmer can plant it and if they lose, they still win. But the taxpayer loses and the soil loses and our, the resilience of our agricultural system loses when that happens. There's no magic bullet in any of this, but how might you rank the priorities with regards to the farm bill and how that can not only help farmers and farmer livelihoods, but also improve food security? I think I would want to prioritize conservation. 
you know, it's still a sad fact that there's two pounds of soil going down the Mississippi River for every pound of corn that's being grown in the Corn Belt. Uh, why are we subsidizing systems that are essentially destroying soil at twice the rate that they're producing food? You know, and that uh, there shouldn't be any subsidies going on to farms that are d destroying their land base. And we've time and time again have had farm bills that attempted to require just a minimum level of erosion control by the farmers. And it's always been watered down and eventually uh, basically diluted out of the system. I think it's time to revisit that question and let's, I think it would be worthwhile for taxpayers who are subsidizing a farming system to demand that that farming system at least show that they are doing, that they are maintaining erosion at no higher than the rate at which soil can regenerate as a starting place. So what you're describing sounds just like common sense. Um, why is it that we can't have this kind of common sense in our <laughs> policy? Is the deck stacked? Are there other obstacles that we need to address first? Well, there's the old, uh, said old clip or quip that is overused about it's impossible to get somebody to understand something when their income depends on them not understanding it. You know, I think we've got a lot of vested interest in maintaining things the way they are and in not stretching and making changes because we're here for a reason. We're here because certain interests are doing better and benefiting from the system the way it is. And they don't want to see change. Farmers who are using methods that cause cities to have to spend a lot of money on water purification are actually producing off-farm and off-target effects that are costing their neighbors a lot of money. So they're putting these things off the balance sheet, but the neighbors are ending up paying for those effects. Other farmers are producing, and every farm has some positives and some negatives. Some farmers produce a lot more positive impacts on the neighborhood and on society than they produce negative ones. And we should be setting up a system where society fairly compensates the farmers who are producing positive benefits for them for those benefits and penalizes farmers who are basically uh, putting some of their expenses off the balance sheet onto other people. So a lot of people don't really consider the offsite impacts of agriculture. Yes. Um, what examples can you give for the average person to understand that? A really great example is the New York City watershed is in the Catskills. And there's some massive reservoirs and some huge uh, pipes that bring water, clean water from the Catskill reservoirs down into the city. Uh, farmers who are living in that area impact the water. And uh, modern agricultural methods are putting things in the water that the uh, people in New York City would have to be building very expensive water treatment facilities to make that water safe and potable. They found it's a lot cheaper to pay the farmers for using practices that keep the water clean than it is to build a treatment plant. Not only that, but it makes a lot more sense. Uh, to me, it's a lot more appetizing to think that our water stayed clean to begin with than, it's, than it got dirty and then we had to figure out how to clean it up. But there's an example of money being put into agriculture to help uh, farmers offset the cost of some changes that need to be made that have a positive impact on the people downstream who are drinking the water. And the impact, the positive impact they're having on the water is much bigger than the cost of what the taxpayer is helping the farmers do. So it's a really great value for the taxpayer to spend a small amount of money, relatively small, 
supporting agriculture going in a certain direction, doing, using some proactive methods, and in return getting a tremendous increase in the quality of their water and saving a lot of money in water treatment. Is there something that we could write into the Farm Bill that would allow for municipalities around the country to follow this sort of water treatment common sense practice? Well, the erosion that I spoke of could be a beginning because erosion is not just the loss of soil from land, it's the accumulation of soil in our waterways and also the minerals that are coming from the land that's ending up in the water require expensive treatment. So I could really see a, a, a good economic case to be made for farmers who are reducing erosion to low levels being rewarded for their efforts and for the impact that they're having on cities who are using the water downstream, making it cheaper to produce better quality water, not uh, requiring as much money be spent on dredging of the rivers for river traffic. You know, all of, those imp all of these impacts are off-farm impacts of agriculture that could be a huge benefit to everybody or could become an expense to everybody, depending on how the farmer uh, behaves. And if we could use the Farm Bill as a way to incentivize farmers to use practices that benefit the whole country, it would be a win-win situation. So what might be some of those practices? When people talk about cover crops, I sometimes hear cover crops in terms of carbon sequestration or carbon removal. You're talking about it now specifically in terms of conservation. Are, is there a relationship between cover crops and conservation? Cover crops are a great way to reduce erosion, but unless they're part of a system that is designed to reduce erosion, they're only a practice. Uh, I've seen cases where somebody plants a cover crop on the last day that they're allowed to plant it to get their subsidy for doing so, and then terminate it on the first day that they're allowed to terminate it. Now, that, that's not a system. That's, that's just uh, gaming the system, really. Uh, what we need is, a way, is an outcome-based payment, where the farmer who is actively incorporating cover crops, reduced tillage, other great practices into a system that is then shown to reduce the loss of soil and to reduce the loss of minerals that get into our water and reduce the amount of pesticides that are getting in our water, be rewarded for doing that. So I've heard you talk about systems in terms of cultural practice. Can you talk a little bit about how any systemic transformation in the agricultural space starts with cultural change? You know, agriculture contains culture in its term. And to me, the most fun cultural change is our cuisine. And Dan Barber is a good friend of mine, and he's observed that some of the world's greatest cuisines came out of scarcity, where people were clever. They took what nature provided, and they found a way to make it delicious. And along with that, the rest of culture was uh, evolved. So, uh, I think we could really spend more time learning about our culture from the food side and also from the systems because you can look at a cuisine, look at a diet and have it reflect back to the farming system that produced those crops. Uh, I don't know of any cuisine that is based on high fructose corn sweetener and um, hydrogenated soy fat, although maybe we could imagine that. But there are some uh, really delicious cuisines that are based on a whole variety of legumes uh, black beans and grains. If you think about uh, peas are used widely in a lot of cultures, chickpeas, 
uh, lentils. These are all, to me, exciting foods and exciting pieces of a, a rich culture that we've borrowed from around the world. All these different people have come together in this country. Each one brought their culture with them. So when we turn on our TV, um, we see lots of ads for fast food. Um, that seems like a, a huge obstacle for us to overcome if we're trying to really change culture when it comes to food. How do we overcome the, the marketing and the billions of dollars that are vested in maintaining the status quo relative to our cuisine? Are you hopeful that we can do that and how do you think we get there? I know we can do it. Now whether the political will exists, that's another question. Uh, there's a great talk that I heard from Michael Moss. He wrote a book about how the food system works and how uh, food scientists have figured out how to fool our senses into making us overeat. And he said they're looking for what they call the bliss point, which is a combination of sugar and salt that makes you just never be satiated and just keep eating and eating and eating. You know, that's a marketing tool that is very successful in making profit, uh, corporate profits, but it's also very successful in causing a diabetes epidemic in this country, which is costing us a fortune in healthcare. You know, there's, that's the other side of culture is the health of our population could be hugely impacted by re-embracing the roots of our food culture and uh, getting away from the highly processed food and into a much more exciting and diverse cuisine. Uh, I often, uh, at farming meetings, tell people that there is absolutely no question in my mind that organic farming could feed the world tomorrow. And about the time the tomatoes come flying at me for saying that, I say with one caveat, it would be a much more diverse diet. It would be a diet that is not based on high fructose corn sweetener and hydrogenated soy fat. It would be based on a tremendous variety of different plants and a tremendous variety of different types of food preparation. And it would require industry to find ways to handle a bigger diversity of crops and to deliver a bigger diversity of foods to the people who, who are their consumers. So organic corn syrup is not the answer? Uh, organic corn syrup to me would be kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> In fact, a, a farming system that has, doesn't have enough different species in it will inherently need more pesticides and more fertilizer in order to operate. I do a lecture at Cornell where I show how adding to the diversity of a system, just in some cases only bringing in one new species, totally eliminates a pest and totally eliminates the need of a group of pesticides that are being used. So how do we get a corn, soybean, wheat farmer farming 10,000 acres in Nebraska? Even if they might understand and embrace this concept of diversity, the risk to make that transition for them might be too great financially. What can we do to help a farmer like that diversify their crops? I would tell a farmer who's doing that that the risk they're taking by only having the three crops is actually a bigger risk than the risk of having diversity. And it's only the crop insurance subsidy system that is making the risk they're taking acceptable versus the risk of being more diversified. And so the, the other big problem is our food system needs to provide incentive to grow those crops, needs to have infrastructure for receiving those crops distributing them, processing them, and bringing them to market. And at this point, our whole system is so tie keyed 
to two or three different major crops that we don't even have the infrastructure to immediately diversify. I'm still seeing that as a missed opportunity. You know, government could play a role here just in helping rebuild our infrastructure so that we can rediversify our landscape. So back to the Farm Bill. Uh, we know that there's going to be industry lobbyists from all the food producers. Um, what other industries should have their lobbyists at the table who maybe traditionally have not thought that agricultural policy was something that they had an interest in? Well, one non-intuitive one might be the insurance industry, the health insurance industry. You know, we spend an awful lot of money on health care in this country, and a lot of our worst and most expensive diseases are known to be food-related diseases. You know, why don't, why don't we bring those people to the table? On the one hand, the cynic would say that, well, the, the health industry has an interest in having sick people, so they're not going go to go to the mat for the farm bill. Um, what case might you make to them? That's why we have government. If um, individuals within a society are operating in their own interest to the detriment of everybody else, uh, the concept of government should be there to level the playing field and make everybody play fair. Uh, they should be the the referee, so to speak, in our economic system. In talking about um, you know, getting farmers to, to join forces and food producers, other folks that are involved with the food system, what are the challenges that we face when it comes to getting farmers organized to really speak with a unified force? Well, we've got some really good farm organizations. They're very effective at lobbying, but they tend to be lobbying for the status quo. And I think our big challenge is to imagine a better system and to try to get farmers, instead of figuring out how to defend the system that we have now, can we, can we think of a better way? You know, could we dream of a better system and what will it take to get us there? I, I keep talking about systems because that's really the bottom line. We can do all the tweaking we want with improved practices, but if you do an improved practice on a, on a poor system, it's the same as putting lipstick on a pig. You, end, you still got a pig. <laughs> so you've been talking about a group of farmers working together on the land of one farmer. Talk a little bit about how this is a new thing, uh, at least in modern times, and how it really helps the farmers and their livelihoods, but also improves food security. Well, farmers tend to be told that we're rugged individuals, and we certainly value that. It's reinforced in, the, in our culture. It's reinforced in our coffee shops. But what we have found is that cooperation is necessary for survival, and especially in a system that is so difficult for young farmers to get land, access to land in a system where it's so difficult for people who weren't born on a farm and weren't born with millions of dollars in assets want to become farmers. They have to find a way in, and cooperation makes that possible. And we have uh, done something here that I think is unique, but it's been very successful, and that's we have a group of young farmers who each one on their own would probably not be successful, not able to do what they're doing now, but because they're cooperating, they're using a common resource base as in really cutting-edge modern big machinery and modern methods and new technology. They're able to afford that technology by working together and having a much lower cost of equipment per acre because they're using a common base of equipment. Uh, the way they've made it work is very similar to an old idea, the threshing circle, where one of them owns the equipment and the others all work and are paid for their labor and time of operation.
and then everybody gets their work done by the group on time and it gets done better and it gets done faster and it gets done for a lower cost which that lower cost is the key for these young people to be able to acquire land make the payments on it and be successful as farmers You've been listening to the American Resilience Podcast from American Resilience Project. Be sure to visit us online at amresproject.org, that's A-M-R-E-S project.org, where you can sign up for our mailing list, you can watch all of our films for free, and learn more about getting involved in a number of different issues, from the energy transition to coastal resilience to food security. This program is available on all major podcast platforms, and please do leave us a review. Today's show was produced by American Resilience Project with editing help from Joseph Skinner and music by the great John Cabot. For all of us at American Resilience Project, thank you for listening and supporting us because civilization deserves a fighting chance.